the advocacy movement needs to be really thinking about what it's advocating for at a level of detail which guarantees the ongoing sustainability of the system. Hi, I'm Dr. John Salvatore, and welcome to Original and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. But before we go any further, please do me a favour and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so you can be notified of future episodes. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Duffy from the Citizen Network in the UK and Dr. Mark Brown from the International Perspective on the NDIS. The original report is designed to spread discussion and debate about what the future of the NDIS should look like. Check it out. Hi, Simon and Mark. Welcome to the show. Lovely to be here, John. Thank you so much, George. Ah, I'm going to start with some introductions. Uh, Simon, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm, so I'm Simon Duffy. I, um, I'm director of a think tank based in Sheffield in the north of England called Citizen Network Research. And I'm also president of a cooperative movement called Citizen Network, um, which is about creating a world where everyone matters. So that's what I'm trying to do in my life. Try and help create a world where everyone matters. As we all should. And Mark. My name's Mark Brown, and I am a, a research fellow at the Summer Foundation. And I do research into um, disability services, um, including the, the wonderful world of the NDIS. And uh, in my spare time, I'm an NDIS participant myself. In the spare time, I like that. <laughs> now, you just released a report called Redesigning the NDIS, and you wrote that for the Disability Advocacy Network of Australia. How did that come about? Start with you, Simon. Yes, well, 10 years ago, after visiting Australia, just as the NDIS was being designed, um, and I was over talking, actually, I was working for the government of South Australia um, and I was talking about all the things that I'd learnt over the last, at that time, what, 20, 25 years, I think, working on individualised funding and self-directed support. I met the designers of the NDIS and I, and I listened to their account of what the plan was for the NDIS. And I wrote a report which was just called Designing the NDIS, which said that, in my opinion, based on what I'd learned, the NDIS, um, although its intentions were good, would very quickly overspend and that it would be very quickly become increasingly bureaucratic um, because of the way the system was designed. So um, then I went back home <laughs> and I've been working on lots of different things. Um, but I was approached by Dana, um, I think because of the NDIS review, to ask me to see if I could write something um, like an international perspective on the NDIS. What does the NDIS look like from outside? And I was fortunate enough to also get the support of Mark and the Summer Foundation um, 
to ensure that my perspective was also grounded on in the real world experiences of Mark and of the research that had happened over the last 10 years. So Mark, how, how did you get involved? Well, in in the beginning, I thought um, I'd just sort of be playing a um, supporting role and, and providing some extra context um, for, for Simon um, and being based in Australia, I'm in a much better time zone to uh, to chase down certain bits of information and whatnot. So I put my hand up to uh, just just try and be be uh, helpful. But uh, we ended up having some uh, really in depth conversations. Um, I wasn't overly aware of Simon's work previously, um, but our, our conversations um, um, really interesting, and I sort of became more and more involved. And uh, Simon suggested I should be a co-author on the on the eventual report. Simon, your work is focused around citizenship and supporting people to be part of that community. Can you give our audience give an introduction to this whole concept of citizenship? Because I think it's really important that people understand where they're coming from. Sure, George, thank you. Yeah, so by citizenship, I don't really mean having a passport. In a funny way, I probably mean the opposite of that. And the term, I mean, it can be used in different ways, but the way I think me and my friends use it is to describe the status of being an equal as part of a community. Um, I think it's quite similar in a way to ideas around inclusion, but more looked at in terms of what that means to me. Um, Actually, I started thinking about this when I was studying philosophy and politics, but when I started working with people with disabilities and trying to understand what the fight was about, what the injustices were, the idea of citizenship seemed to be a very useful tool for describing what the ambition was for, for everybody, universally. To put it another way, George, a lot of what society does often erodes people's citizenship, and that's particularly true for people with disabilities. So if we, I mean, one of the things that has really always been the pattern, well, the reason I got into this work was I, I visited people with intellectual disabilities back in 1988 in an institution, part of my, um, just I'd started working with a health service. And I was shocked at what society was doing to people and the way in which people were just basically excluded from ordinary opportunities that would allow people to build lives of meaning. So we actually were spending time, money and energy making it harder for people to be citizens. So I'm really interested in what's, you know, how do we create the opportunities for people, everyone, to be a full citizen? Because in a sense, that's also like, citizenship isn't just something like you, you get like a badge. It's also the way of being in the world that makes the world better. You know, if when we turn off citizenship, we're just basically turning off our own agency. Now, when we invented the NDIS, one of the key objectives, one of the key uh, things that we wanted to achieve is to support people to be part of the community and, and to uh, develop our, our ability to participate in our communities. That, that concept of you know, socioeconomic participation is at the heart of what the NDIS is 
is Richard Hughes. As an outsider uh, signing, how do you think the NDS is going in supporting Australians to achieve citizenship? This was really the fundamental problem I saw in the design, that it, um, it's a system that will lead to more money being spent on services. That's almost built into the DNA. Um, but services themselves are either, in a sense, a little bit more likely to exclude you um, or at, at, at least certainly don't do the work of including you. I mean, people's agency does. So spending more money on services doesn't tell you a lot about whether people are better included. Um, you know, the history of services is a history of exclusion. It's hard to find, I mean, there are some examples clearly of where additional help has helped people live better lives but there also seems to be um, still high levels of institutionalisation of, of people really just in more and more service land rather than in the world of community. And there are strange, perverse incentives built into the NDIS, which I think make it harder for people to live lives in community. So I think it's a very mixed picture, is what I'd say. I want to dig deep into those incentives because I think that it's important that people understand uh, what you're getting at here. Yeah. Well, I think there is a um, an incentive that unfortunately uh, means that NDIS participants are pushed to overcome every barrier that they face through the NDIS. Um, and because there's a perception that the NDIS is the one and only system for Australians with disabilities. So a, a common thing that I've heard that other people have said to me is they, when, when facing a barrier and trying to work out how, how can I participate, how can I... Um, how can I be involved and live my life? Is well, don't you get don't you get NDIS funding for that? As the as the first as the first question as the first um, thought that that comes that comes to people's mind. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting. I've, I've experienced that myself, um, and in the context of. Uh, Media, uh, a service uh, um, a dietitian actually um, at the hospital but, but you know I used to get that support through the health system and uh, suddenly they, they said oh no the NDIS will, will sort that out and um, it turned out that the, the dietitian at the hospital was a lot more knowledgeable and and, and how do I say this uh, understanding of the the health uh, aspects of my disability. I think that one of the additional ways the NDIS has depopulated inclusion is that by international standards, I can't think of any other system which doesn't really seem to, in a way, have any faith in people, and in a very broad sense, to... Um, to actually act in the interests of disability rights or inclusion. In anywhere else in the world, for instance, you would expect to see 
um, other actors with responsibilities for inclusion and citizenship and support and um, at, at a local level, for instance, the closest system I can think that's comparable to the NDIS is probably the American funding system, which is called Medicaid. But in the Medicaid system, there are actors at the federal level, the state level, the local level, who have a, a kind of fiduciary duty to actually ensure that things are working right, to support people, to provide services to people, in addition to the funded services through the Medicaid system. So it's, it's like there's an architecture that people have invested in, and there are roles given to people in lots of different levels that are meant to be making inclusion and citizenship happen. But I can't see that kind of architecture really, apart from things like local area coordination, which is a kind of, again, a purchased service by the NDIA. So there is this just tendency to think about the NDIA as the kind of engine room for all things good, which is unusual and, and doesn't seem very realistic. Yeah, and going back to what Mark said about um, having um, the NDIS being the answer to, to everything, um, we, we do need to really question that, don't we? Because I don't think that was the original intention. I, I think the original intention was that there'd be a more developed ecosystem of support. That's right. The, the, that ecosystem, which is a good way of putting it, is um, sorely lacking. And I think that, um, I mean, the review team are using this expression, which I think is a very good expression of the problem, which is kind of an oasis in a desert. But that almost is, you know, if you're not careful, that's almost as if the desert is there by accident. But I suppose my observation 10 years ago was that you're creating the desert by the way you are designing the NDIS and the role of the NDIA. You're, you're creating a system where water will be concentrated in one place and where a lot of places will, will dry up. So the report talks about some key problems and I'm really keen to really understand um, your, your uh, views on Yes, yeah, so I suppose I would say that there are problems around the quality of life and, and in a way those are much more fundamental and important problems. But one of the propositions of the report is that sustainability is an essential quality of any system that's going to achieve anything. So sustainability in itself is a thing that one has to pay attention to in designing a good system. And um, if the system is not sustainable, and, and really by sustainable here, I mean, if the economic costs are not reasonable by the standards of the society and they're not stable but for the society, then that system will end up being corrupted, turned off or crushed. And I'm, making, I'm not making this observation lightly. I'm making this observation from having spent 30 years of my life working with different countries in different systems and looking at how they develop. Many of them do go through periods of relatively rapid growth, although I've never seen a system grow financially at the rate at which the NDIS has. Um, 
But if their growth is too high, they end up hitting really serious barriers or being turned off. So I, I want to make this point really because it might seem a really heavy duty point to make and maybe a bit overly frightening, but I think this is actually fundamental. If, if the system can't survive, then any worries we have about how good or bad it is are almost redundant. So what we try to do in the report is understand what we use this kind of fancy word of system dynamics, but what are the incentives and structures and flows that are going on that are explain the high rate of inflation or cost increase in the system? Because that is, in my experience, the critical weakness um, of any system politically and socially. And, and so then what, what the report does is kind of having said, well, you really need to pay attention to sustainability. Is it an essential requirement of a decent system? The report tries to say, well, what are the structures that are creating this kind of uh, economic cost increase in Australia? And we end up mapping this out and identifying kind of five interlocking factors, which are to do with, you know, and one of those is the fact that the system, it's, it says it's demand driven. Okay. And I'm not, demand driven might work in the right context, but a demand driven system in the context that Australia set up combined with a system where the, the NDI itself, it can only really manage costs through changing the bureaucratic rules when actually people are in a very insecure system. They're given very few rights, very few clarities, so they have to keep claiming for money from this system in a particular way. The money that they claim has to be closely linked to services and service providers have a great incentive to either generate appropriate services, create new services, help people make claims. And then the system itself, and this is a critical point, or the community itself almost has an incentive to switch off natural or mainstream services or to not make the adaptions that would make life easier because money is available through other sources through the NDIS. So the example you gave of the dietitian service, George, is a perfect example of what seems to be happening all over the place. I think it's an important thing we, we say in the report is that um, it's, it's not like anyone, participants, service providers, the community are just selfishly looking to um, extract as much money as possible. But it's the way the dynamics are set up means that the, the right thing for each of, for each of those um, stakeholders, they, ha they have to um, behave in that way or, or take that course of action. So for your example of, of, uh, of the health system saying, well, you know, hey, have you uh, tried to get a dietitian through the NDIS? From, from their perspective, um, could be seen as, you know, you have this entitlement to this NDIS funded um, service. Um, don't, you know, we, we want to see you uh, get everything you're entitled to. And so I, I think we're, we're set up in this way where uh, 
trying to do the right things by ourselves, by our families, by our communities, where unfortunately, because of the lack of clarity about what NDIS funding is actually supposed to do, we uh, we end up uh, inadvertently increasing costs and um, spending money in quite inefficient ways sometimes. Let's try and um, make this a little bit more practical then. What are some practical steps? So um, clearly, um, if we are to uh, make sure that, that people get this is what they need, um, and we don't want that all just to be services, what, what is it that, that we need to do differently? What are the changes that you think we need to see? The most important change is that the design of the NDIS itself needs to be done in partnership with people with disabilities. So almost like the report is full of specific examples of things that I think and Mark thinks if we change this, this would be helpful. But I would say the more fundamental thing that's missing really is that people with disabilities are sitting down at the as a as a movement collectively representing their interests, but also in negotiation with the other interests in play to create the system that is most likely to both be sustainable and to achieve the original objectives of the NDIS, which are good. I absolutely agree with that, and that's why I'm so involved in um, policy, and, and I think that the, the current government has made some, taken some really good steps in, in co-design and in making sure that, that we're involved in, in, in the policy development. But the thing that where it gets difficult, and your report talks about this, is around how do we assess need? How do we understand what, what is reasonable necessary? How do we end up working out um, what funding um, a person is entitled to? And the report talks about a, um, an approach to this, and you use a term, um, the term that you use is that would be a, a, a broad assessment of need. Can I ask, um, what can you like first, how would that assessment take place and how, how would that be different from the independent assessments that, that the community are strongly opposed um, a few years ago? The um, independent assessments um, were, was a, obviously a debacle and it was something which was imposed and there was no transparency or clarity about about what information um, participants were asked to give and, and why, and then how did that lead to um, an NDIS plan? There, whatever the system, whatever the method of, of, um, of allocation, it's got to be uh, really clear and simple enough that you have a good expectation for going, well, if my life carries on 
in roughly these circumstances. In five years, I can, I can, uh, I can reasonably assume that I'll have a similar level of funding, and I can plan my life around knowing that that will be there. Um, currently, each plan review is very much an individual negotiation between the participant and the agency. And when an individual's negotiating with a government agency, they're not in a strong negotiating position. Um, having, having a certain number of funding bands or categories with clear criteria that are have been negotiated collectively by the dis disability community and with the details really worked out in a co-design collaborative process, I think there is um, a great deal more peace of mind that could be achieved. Well, when governments use a word like independent, run for the hills. Okay. <laughs> a word like... A word like that is code for actually we'd need to try and design something that isn't independent. That's our experience in the UK. Um, so I think that I think that there is something very worrying when governments use that language because well you need assessments in a system that's for sure. Now what's the what's the criteria and what and who's doing the assessment are two slightly different variables. I want to go back to your reasonable and necessary, which is the name of your podcast, of course, isn't it? Yeah. Now, that in itself, they're very weird criteria, I would say. Like, and already you're in a, in a space that sounds to me, at least as an outsider, as very disempowering. If my way of having my needs met is for me to say, well, I think this will help me and this will help me, do you think that's reasonable? Do you think that's necessary? And to allow the system to assess that, already sounds a disempowering but b it's not even sufficient like i could have a load of things that are reasonable and necessary and still not have enough and one of the words that's missing from this conversation in in the design of the ndis i think is what's enough and what's enough so that people can live lives of citizenship should be the central question and that's what the system needs to deliver. And it needs to deliver that not as a package of services, which is something that should really be under the control of the person, should evolve, should change, and doesn't always have to be in the form of a service. But it needs to be in the form of something much more flexible and empowering, which is money. So I think we need to think more about what the money is for. It's to meet people's needs to be citizens. We need to think more about what enough is. And what I'd say is what enough is, is, is not a theoretical thing. It's a pretty empirical thing. Like you can actually see it in how people's lives are functioning. But again, the NDIS isn't super strong at really even seeing what's happening when people get these packages of service. You know, it's not asking itself, well, did we give George enough to ensure his citizenship? 
you know, we've given him these services, he got these services, we paid for the services that he received. That's the question, um, but not how's George life really functioning? And, and is he able to live as a citizen? If not, why not? These are the kind of questions that I think proper disability support systems need to be asking. Who asks them is a very interesting question. So again, in the, in, 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 in the Australian NDIS system, essentially those questions aren't really asked, but any assessment that's being done is being done really within the NDIA by people who do not have a personal relationship of any meaning, significance, enduring with the person. So it's very bureaucratic. And again, there's, I can't find any other system in the world like that. Um, but, you know, you could, you could ask yourselves, as the disability movement, why don't we do the assessments? And um, you could do assessments in all sorts of different ways. There isn't one model from around the world that's the best one. And I would have thought the most reliable one would be one where people with disabilities were part of the process of making assessments, not just for themselves, but also collectively at a local level. There are all sorts of things that could be developed to ensure the reliability of those kind of primary questions around, well, how is your life? What do you need? How can we make sure that that's available? And in that context, going back to Mark's point, actually making the financial or budgetary system relatively clear and easy to navigate for people turns out to make things easier. And that, that's been my experience, at, both in kind of working with systems, but also working as a service provider and working directly alongside people with disabilities myself. myself. Clarity really, really, really helps. And you talk about, um, you know, for um, meaningful entitlements, um, I'm interested in this because I know that in the UK, you've got this uh, concept of personal budgets, and in Australia, we have self-management. I'm trying to understand the difference um, between the two. And, and when I read your report, it sounds like um, you're recommending that we um, essentially move to um, uh, different people the money themselves to decide how to spend that money without any um, restrictions whatsoever. Is, is that what you'd like us to see do in Australia? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a member, a founding member of the Self-Directed Support Network, and my work has been around, for, for 30 years, has been around ensuring that people with the most complex disabilities, including intellectual disabilities, can be in control of their own lives and can be in control of their own services. And there's decades and decades, not just from the UK, George, I'm talking about Canada, Australia, New Zealand, large parts of Europe. There are, there are decades of experience of these kind of systems evolving um, to ensure that everybody can have control. Now, personal budgets is, in a sense, just a little ingredient of a system of self-directed support. It seems like the natural ingredient for people with a significant disability that they have the right to a budget which they can control and which they can use flexibly. So that's part of the system. It isn't the system on its own. 
And certainly what I would say is that, I mean, the self-management system delivered by the NDIS, I mean, George, I presume use it, I know Mark uses it, is by international standards not a brilliant system. It's itself already pretty bureaucratic. But so I'm not but I certainly think that everybody who receives support through the NDAS should be in control of their own funding, shaping their own support, able to build the life that's meaningful to them, able to move away from uh, segregated or excluding services. And that's kind of what is behind the movement to self-direction. It's giving people agency, it's giving people power. You shouldn't really, in a sense, be choosing between self-managed or not self-managed. That doesn't make any sense from an independent living point of view. Everybody should be self-managed. And the system needs to be designed so that's possible for everyone. That, that should be a fundamental principle, uh, in my view, of a redesigned NDIS. Self-management, in its genuine sense, should be universal. Um, the people I've talked to who use self-management um, seem to really value um, the flexibility that they can get out of it. So wherever there's flexibility, people seem to say, you know, that really does open up opportunities. But a lot of NDIS participants are afraid to take advantage of the flexibilities that they notionally do have. And I, I feel like this sometimes. I worry about if if I use my funding in this way, how is it going to look at the next plan meeting? And is it going to, um, will I be judged to have not been using the funding properly? And does it affect uh, the decisions made about what I'm entitled to uh, on the next on the next round? So I think sometimes flexibility of funding isn't just about um, naturally labelling a, a bucket of money you know, flexible, um, fl you know, there for flexible use, but it's got to be actually viewed as this is my funding that, that I have the right and responsibility to put to the best use I can. Well, because ultimately, I think we know what's best for ourselves, right? We're much more likely to. And sometimes we've got to do experiments um, and see if something works. And sometimes it might not work. We might try something else. That is how expertise is built. Yeah. And that, that's why I think that self-management is so important. Mark, you also advocate strongly in the report for peer support, more investment in peer support. Why is that so important? Peer support might be the answer to a number of a number of problems and a number of fears people will have about the kind of things we're suggesting. Um, sort of who's looking after you if the NDAA is not um, not monitoring you closely? Well, the, the answer might be is if we have stronger peer networks, is if you've got connections with other people with lived experience, um, 
that might be the basis of of good planning, good monitoring, um, safeguards, because you've got community. Um, can I can I tell a uh, a um, give a personal example of about peer support? Please go ahead. Um, this is only a couple of years ago, but I was um, looking into doing direct employment, um, making use of my of my self managed funding, and I just really um, didn't have the confidence to to jump in and take it on. Um, but there, I met someone at at my workplace at the Summer Foundation, who I'd heard had um, done direct employment with his with his um, NDIS funding, and he very kindly um, took some time to go through with me how he makes that work for him, and um, that was a really pivotal um, pivotal sort of uh, experience for me. Now that that person was actually Dr. George Talaporis, uh, <laughs> but the because I knew you were the advice was coming from you that had that had 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 this lived experience. The credibility of the advice and guidance you gave me uh, was something I could not find anywhere anywhere else. Um, and so that, that was one experience where, um, yeah, peer support was just an essential ingredient in me unlocking, um, a much better, cheaper actually way of, of doing my, my supports. Um, there might be something in that for the whole NDIS if we could think more in terms of, of that being our instinct to look to each other for 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 guidance for for encouragement for ideas and creativity. Absolutely, I think a lot more investment is needed in in that area, and and I also you know, benefit from learning from other people who have kind of done things that that I want to try, and I just want to. Oh, how did that go? And you know, how did you do that? And oh, can I do that? You know, it's those things that you you're not gonna learn from a, a service or from a, a professional. I think we really underestimate the the power of peer support. You also say that support should be rooted in the community. How how do you do that? So I think one of the things that globally people are thinking about George is how to get a number of things happening and changing in our communities actually peer support should be the engine for community change and communities should themselves be more active in thinking about how do we support each other uh, and, and again this is everybody and not just people with the most complex disabilities all of us need mutual support in our lives when it comes to the professional services, I think that what we're learning is the best versions of those start to look much smaller, much more rooted in a particular place, much better connected in that place. Um, I think I remember a story 
back in 2013 when I'd written my critical report. And, um, but I was being um, interviewed by management consultants who were working for the NDIA about the market impact of individualised funding globally. And I had to say to them, there is no, no empirical evidence that I'm aware of that shows markets have any benefit at all. The benefits that we see from individualised funding are to do with people designing things that work for them, for them getting closer to community, for them creating a life that really matters. It's really important that people have the ability to say, I want to do this, but also, no, I don't want to do that. But the actual support services themselves, you, we don't benefit from a huge shopping catalogue, a huge array of services. What we really benefit from are things that are local, where the people who support us are from our local community, know our local community like we do, are actually part of that community. So I think what Australia should be thinking about is, is not trying to grow the markets and talking about fat markets and thin markets. It should be trying to ensure that every community has the infrastructure it needs to ensure that people can get the support they need, whether that's paid support or whether that's informal support. Support in the end is something that is part of community, whether whether are elements of it that are professionalised or not. I, I really like that. And, and I think that um, not just local to them, but um, that, that relate to their interests. I, I think that we, we benefit a lot from doing things that are passionate about and being around other people who share those Businesses and passions. And I'd I'd like to um, just wrap up with uh, giving them both an opportunity to um, provide a bit of a key message that you'd like um, decision makers and the community to take away uh, from the report. So, can I start with you, Mark? Yeah. Well, I guess I I mainly want to. Um, speak to the disability community more than more than um, gov government or decision makers, and I guess my message to other NDIS participants and 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 their families and friends is um, ha have a think about what what would make um, your your NDIS entitlement something. That you've really felt confident to pick up and use and run with, and make the most make the most of, um, without without fear of of um, the next plan review. If if you can if you can get a sense of what would make me feel secure in my funding, and that might be the basis for negotiating um, some clarity around what what reasonable and necessary means in different circumstances Simon? yeah i think that it's important that uh, when i was asked to to do this report actually i proposed that this was not a report to government that this was a report to people with disabilities and and i mean there's lots of reasons for that but partly what I would like to say in the same way, speaking to the disability community itself, is 
this is the paradox. Like, from a global perspective, the NDIS and the advocacy movement that was created to achieve it beats everything out there. Nobody has ever organised like Australia organised and nobody has ever achieved that big step change that you've seen in Australia. So that's, that's fantastic. And advocates around the world are inspired by that Australian story. But alongside that, I would say that no government in the world will be coming to visit the Australia and trying to copy the system that you've created because it doesn't look sustainable. And that for the disability world, so this is in a way is just Mark's point, but taken to an aggregate level. For the disability community, you have to think about what is the system entitlement? What is the aggregate kind of resource that we really think is fair and appropriate for us? How do we secure that? And how do we ensure that it's used to best effect in our lives? What kind of systems do we need? So I just think that the advocacy movement is what makes Australia unique, special, world-beating. But, but what flows from that is then the advocacy movement needs to be really thinking about what it's advocating for at a level of detail, which guarantees the ongoing sustainability of the system. I was thinking about asking you, George, in, in writing this report, we expected that a number of the ideas are quite, um, will be quite challenging um, and, and counterintuitive. What are, the, what are the ideas that you think um, people will find quite challenging? I think that when people read the report, they're going to see um, the, the emphasis on cost containment. Um, and I think that that can be really scary because we are always being told by the media that we're too expensive and that we're, and that, and that we're costing the taxpayer uh, too much money. And, and I, I, I think that the NDIS you know, is an investment in our lives. So I do find the narrative around um, explosion of, of cost as an aspect that I, um, I found challenging. But I did understand um, that there was a context to that. Um, and that context was around what happened in the, in the UK and, uh, and the, the fact that overnight um, services were, were cut um, without any consideration of the, the impact that that might have had. So I, I definitely, um, it definitely got my attention and I'm getting a lot to think about. How's that right? Thanks so much. I, I think if, um, if you know, others in the disability community can um, be, you know, as kind as you've been to, to you know, really... Uh, Read, read through the report and um, take what we're saying seriously and engage with it, then that's, uh, then we'll be, pr feel like that's been a pretty, pretty good exercise, even if not everyone agrees with us um, or um, you know, th thinks, thinks that we've, uh, we've uh, delivered a, a perfect solution. 
Fire it a lot. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Charles. That was a powerful until I unnecessary. We really love the feedback. So please, share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable. Um, yeah, I'm just going to write that just hit me in the eyes. I just like to close that curtain for a minute. Looks like there's a divine intervention happening. Yeah. <laughs>